Hey, I'm joined by my good friend, Brooke Burgess, who I've known for, I think, about 20 years now, my friend. I, th yeah, the th I think the first time we met was uh, you coming in for an audition for Electric Playground because you've done a little bit of everything. And that, that's why I wanted to talk with him. I think that, uh, you know, in my career, I've had the opportunity to meet lots of fascinating people. But a lot of people that I talk to kind of stick with a with a track. They, they start in game development and they keep working with teams for a very long time. And that's fascinating, too. But Brooke has bounced around and worked on a million different projects. And uh, he's a fascinating gentleman. He's done uh, some on-camera stuff. He's done a lot of writing. Uh, he's done some voice work. Uh, he's worked in AAA games. He's worked in mobile. Uh, and I think most recently, I think one of the biggest um, presentations of your work was when uh, at the iPhone 7 keynote, the, the big mobile game that you have been working on with this game studio, it's called Oz the Broken Kingdom. Uh, was uh, revealed to the world up on stage at the Apple event, and that must have that must have been a big deal. We're going to talk a little bit about the Cat's Maw, which is the new book that he wrote. Uh, he also wrote Broken Saints, and uh, you know turned that into a pretty amazing transmedia property. Uh, and uh, you've got other mobile games working with Iron Maiden, must have been crazy. Um, and a little bit more about you, but let's talk specifically about. Uh, well, first of all, welcome to my basement and welcome uh, to EP. Thank you, it's good to finally be in your basement. It's something we've been talking about for, gosh, I think since the start of Saints, like after we first met and after the greedy productions thing. Yeah. And that production company name stuck with me forever <laughs> because you're the most like affable and one of the most generous guys I met as far as your time and your energy when I was in Vancouver. And yet your, your company logo was this bag of money. And I'm like, I was trying to reconcile and it just never left my that's well, that, cool. that was uh, an old boss of mine. Uh, I was working as a waiter and I needed a lot of shifts because I was saving money to build my company. And he said, you're very greedy, but in a good way. And when somebody calls you greedy, you never forget that. And so that, well, that was the name that I thought of. And I just I like the tongue in cheek play on that. Uh, but anyways, enough about that. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Oz and this project and how you came in to be involved with Oz, it's Oz the Broken Kingdom, right? Oz Broken Kingdom, yeah. It's It's been a really fascinating journey and it was something that completely came out of the blue. Um, when when the book, and we'll get back to that later, when, when the Cat's Maw came out and was well received critically and got some like great buzz and some wonderful reviews and a few awards, uh, things kind of came full circle from my gaming days. I didn't have plans to go back into games, although if the right project came along or it really passionate about the story I was like yeah, I just hadn't clicked in a while I haven't really felt right about a project and then you have this kind of flashback to the past my EA days where I got started on games on the Need for Speed team um, I, I had my my old uh, my old boss who like taught me almost everything I knew in the game industry Scott Blackwood the current you know the head of founder of this game studio get in touch and say hey congrats on the book um, so we're kind of cooking something here would you like to chat about it and uh, we started talking, and his thing was like, do you think something could be done with awe as we're looking at the mobile space? And, uh, you know, the mythology is really, really deep. How about you read the books and give us a couple of takes on how this could, you know, be gamified, how this would work, how, how you could lay a story on top of these RPG elements uh, and, and these, you know, card kind of battling elements and the resource-based elements and kind of the free-to-play space, but do it in a way that hadn't been done. Right. By anybody else with this in depth, and so I, I read Baum's original books and was 
you know, kind of blown away. It doesn't, it's deceptively deep. It doesn't seem that way. But then you realize there are these really cool, like, kind of feminist themes, which are current. Uh, there's, you know, like, political stresses, uh, tensions between, like, the 99% and the 1% kind of hinted at in the, in the literature. Uh, a hints of, like, the potential for uh, the darkness of addiction uh, with magic. All of these things were there, and I'm like, you know, we could do something timely and kind of current and almost reimagine the story. We're still keeping the original mythos. You still have Dorothy and the wizard and all of these primary characters that people know and love from the film and from the books. But how would it feel like for someone modern in yeah. like modern time, war-torn times, uh, with culturally strained times, entering into this world? How would they react to it versus the, you know, the gosh golly kind of feeling of the original books? And that's kind of where we took it, the idea of civil war, the idea of unrest, the idea of magic, which had been kept in the hands of the very young, but of Chalks has this really dark and potentially addictive quality. It overtakes the denizens of Oz, and then here comes a human, and it affects her differently as well. What does that mean? How will that play out? And for me, most importantly, I really wanted to see what happens to these characters who went on the original quest, specifically Tin Man, uh, Lion, and Scarecrow, who were lacking brain, were lacking courage, were lacking heart? Well, now it's been decades upon decades in this world, and they've become these archetypes of the exact opposite, these archetypes of intelligence and of courage and of strength and empathy. What would it be like to be with these legends who had now swung the pendulum in their own behavior and become these things? How would they behave? How would they be changed? And how could they be seen through the lens of this young girl who's really like, you know, been in the trenches and seen some bad stuff in our world, and suddenly she's in this magical utopia what does that mean how would that feel and that's kind of what i pitched and everyone seemed to be really game pardon the pun for it and we took it from there it's been a year writing the story that's amazing you can see the amount of work in it when you boot it up not just in the the visual fidelity and i think that's the big reason why it was uh, shown off at the apple keynote but uh sure. there there is a tremendous amount of uh fiction that has been crafted and built up for it. But there's also, as with any kind of modern mobile title that's sort of looking to uh, you know, embrace this free-to-play free model, there's a tremendous amount of um, exposition and, and information to kind of guide you through uh, how to play and how ultimately it starts to make money for Nexon and, and this game studio. Do you write all of that stuff too, or was your work purely just based on the fiction? My, my thing was like, I'm not a I'm not a pro in that regard. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. That's yeah. one thing about getting. I'm sure, you agree. Uh, but my thing with the studio was like, okay, let me in any moments where a character is going to be explaining uh, the dynamics and uh, the the systems of the game to the player. Right. Uh, can I come speak the voice? Can I come in and make it sound like Ophelia? Make it sound like Ozma? Make it sound like the Crystal Cat and these other characters? So you really get a sense that anything that's being said in the game is being said from a place of you know, genuine personality. Because it's a subtle little thing, it's a tiny thing, but as you get further and further in the story, when you're laying out kind of the parameters of the character, you're seeing shifts in character motivation, it means that much more when something big happens. Right on, it's awesome. The whole way through with character. How much back and forth was there between, uh, you know, the work that you were building, the, the sort of the game that uh, this game studio wanted to build, you know, based on the story that you guys were building together, and what Nexon 
wanted as a property, but also you know, understanding the confines of a brand that's incredibly well known. I mean, this is a, a beloved universe, this, uh, this Oz universe, and people have their preconceptions of it. And what is in the game is definitely not what we remember from the movies. No, for sure. I'm not sure you can hear me right now because things are slowing down a little bit on this end as far as the connection. Yeah. Uh, so let me know. But um, we were given uh, at least this game studio because they were bringing such a, an incredible system uh, and structure to how the game was being made. And the design was just, you know, mind-blowingly cool as I was pouring through what they had planned. I'm like, okay, I hope the story can do all all of this work justice is going to be beautiful it's going to be deep it's going to be smart it's going to be addictive it's going to be all of these things yeah um but next on surprisingly you know they just really gave a lot of trust i think the the mix of savvy veterans and uh really talented upstarts and rogues at this game studio were able to say hey let us do this we're going to do this we're going to do this well right we got right next Right. As long as it, you know, as long as it passes all of the, you know, the quality tests and it can like work on all these systems, go crazy. So there, I think the second thing you said that was more important was about we wanted to be, and it was a talk of this from the beginning. It's like you want to bring in the, the key factors of Oz are like a whimsy, a real sense of whimsy, that kind of magical awe and wonder. Um, uh, but at the same time, these themes that we discussed, right? Like the themes of what it means to be alive, what it means to be conscious, what it means to be human, what it means to be able to make choices, the consequences of actions, uh, the repercussions of using magic, which is kind of like, you know, the essence of something beyond ourselves, what it means to have a lot of power versus very little. Uh, and the theme, which is so present in Baum's books, which is, you know, embedded into the design of the game, which is one of transformation. What does it mean? to change and to right. grow and these great changes that those legendary characters have been through scarecrow lion Tin Man, and others um did it affect them purely in a positive way right take a look at that because it's never just black and white it's never just a binary thing and i really wanted to dig into that so we were given a lot of freedom and and uh, the team at this game studio were really open to a lot of with things that was pitching as far as where we're taking the story and characters and being open to these ideas of, okay, it's not just a mustache twirling villain. It's not just people doing good because they feel like they have to. Um, everything's being challenged. And Ophelia Shen, the, the new protagonist, who's kind of the new version of the Dorothy character uh, who comes into this world, is constantly challenging these different figures and characters and, and uh, you know, villains or authority figures and saying, you know, why are you being that way? What does it mean to be you? Why should I be a certain way? What does goodness mean? Right. You know, just because you're powerful, does that make you better? And having those voices there all the time, questioning everyone's objectives, just makes for uh, richer characters and a richer storytelling experience. It's out on the uh, market out there already. People are are playing this game right now. How is it doing? How what's the reception like? What are, are people happy? Oh, wow. It's been it's been an absolute. I, I was I was blown away. I, I knew how capable. Uh, Scott Blackwood and, and Heather Price and, and Chris Coe and like, you know, the, the founders of this game studio were at like, you know, making these relationships like with Nexon and, and you know, trumpeting things. But when the Apple thing happened, you know, everyone's jaws dropped. No one had an idea what's going to happen. They kept it secret. Uh, and then the response after that, sure, you can have the big bomb drop, but you know, the, the followed afterwards, the dust can settle very quickly and people can go, oh, uh, that didn't happen. It's, I think it's editor's choice in Apple, in over a hundred Apple and Android shops mm -hmm. worldwide. Um, 
the the response on the forums has been like really rapid when you're following you know the hashtags on Twitter and we're looking at different places at the at the reviews from actual users, not only from the campaign mode but also from the PvP mode. Like there's a really rich PvP and, and uh, the team is there tweaking it constantly based upon user feedback. They're really really passionate about giving uh, players and users a deeply satisfying experience and not just an also ran. That's awesome. Well, I know Scott, and I actually uh, shared a cab with him from uh, the airport to our hotels at uh, uh, San Francisco at GDC, and he, could, he didn't tell me what the project was, but he told me that he was working with you. But the thing that I picked up from him, this is Scott Blackwood, the guy that runs uh, this game studio, is that he really made that transfer to uh, the mobile space from AAA, and he is fully invested in mobile. He doesn't really play the mobile game, or the AAA stuff that much anymore. His attention has been on how to make great games in this mobile kind of world, and clearly he's uh, he's been doing something right. I've just merely scratched the surface with Oz. Um, that was going to be my question: is is how do you keep people because this is a narrative-driven sort of you know role-playing game with card-battling elements in it, uh, but it feels like there's a a through line and possibly an ending to this story. But how do you keep people playing? you know, when you've got a free-to-play juggernaut like this, and it sounds like PvP is the way that they're doing it. PvP is the way to do it, and and as they kind of pitched to me to help me understand, because I had been a console guy before, and I'd appreciated mobile experiences, but usually just Twitch ones or puzzle ones, and yeah. I hadn't really played an RPG, an epic RPG title on mobile, and the way they were pitching it was like, listen, um, similar to the serial stories that you love, Twin Peaks and the prisoners and the losts and the things like this, and the Buffies and the whatever, the story you're going to be telling, if it's compelling enough and the characters are interesting enough, uh, through dialogue alone, you don't have big cutscenes, right? You've got the intro cinema and some really like short cutscenes before, before and after boss battles. But it's really the, the you know two characters sliding in dialogue scenes are driving the story forward, and yeah. if you do that effectively people will want to know what happens next. So you've got that. You've got an incredibly you know, fun, rich, challenging, guild-based PvP thing. And of course, you've also got the classic gaming hook, which is for the completists, the people who want to get all the cards, get all the spells, get all the abilities, get all the gem crafting done. They want to like have everything, to have the ultimate experience, and to have their character evolve. Uh, to like change to the different forms as they do, right? Ophelia, Tin Man, uh, Scarecrow, uh, and the Lion, and also some other playable characters coming, get to evolve through different stages of their look, of their abilities. It's uh, pretty damn cool. Awesome, dude. Well, you uh, you wrote the story or helped to conceive a lot of the story, at least for Oz, but you also worked on this Iron Maiden game, which... Uh, uh, is I think probably the last game from uh, the the game company. Yeah, that rest built. Yes, rest in peace, Roadhouse. There's like yeah. some good folks there, and uh, they had a really really good vibe. It was another case for me, which was fascinating. After the book came out, before Scott got in touch, um, uh, another uh, old compatriot slash mentor from my EA days, Tarney Williams. Um, he got in touch after the book released and did, did quite well and, and said, hey, you know, I'm not sure what your schedule is like, whether you're diving into the next book, working on some screenplay or secret project, but uh, they were kind of working on something. They were cooking up a few things there. asked if I wanted to kind of come in and maybe offer like a narrative eye. Uh, and I said, yeah, I'd definitely be interested. I had a great experience with him. Uh, just to backtrack a bit, um, my connection with him in the old school EA days. If you remember the launch of the PS2, which yeah. I'm sure you do, yeah. uh, one of the 
one of the launch titles was um, a, a localized, a translated version of Koei's or Koei's epic uh, game Kessen, yeah. the uh, feudal warfare. Yes. And uh, and I and Tarni was in charge of that. And uh, basically, we had a relationship then. And I said, okay, so who's doing your who's doing your writing? He said, well, we have a translation that's you know it's a really bare bones translation from Japanese. And I pitched, hey, how about rewriting this in the style of Akira Kurosawa's Land? making it Shakespearean and having it have that tone, the little tongue in cheek, but definitely having it feel like a historical epic. And he's like, there are a lot of lines in this. And I say, gimme. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, not only one of the most satisfying little gigs of my career, like rewriting thousands of lines of dialogue. Wild. But because, but because we also had to match to three hours, because that was a massive CG experiment too back yeah, in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. And B of CG characters, and so we were going in and had to match to flaps yeah. for those characters with translation. So I was <laughs> rewriting by, and then Tony said, "Well, you know what? You also had experience from your Need for Speed days of voice directing. How about you, you know, work with the casting director, and you know, we get the right cast, and you direct them, and then rewrite on the fly to make sure it works with how they can mouth it." And I'm like, "Okay." And so that was that was such a valuable experience for Saints and other things later because the casting thing was a concentrated three months, oh, go, go, seven days a week of rewriting and this. So I had a really warm feeling about Tarney, about how much latitude he had given me back in the day and yeah. faith he had in me. He's an amazing guy. And so he is. And when he got in touch, I was like, wow, okay, he wouldn't have got in touch unless he had faith I could kind of do this. And so he came in and I, you know, I made some contributions to a couple of their in-house projects. But the one, of course, he kind of like, you know, one day we were driving back to the North Shore because I've been traveling for a while and I was getting my sea legs back to Vancouver and he's like uh, so um, did you ever used to listen to heavy metal when you're younger and I'm like yeah totally you know, I'm an old school and he's like so did you ever listen to Iron Maiden and I'm like are you kidding me at one of the Broken Saints concerts like I, I sang Run to the Hills like an idiot like I love and he's like well okay so here's kind of what we're doing this free to play RPG but really based around the mythology that is either overtly or covertly hinted at in throughout the albums. Is there a way you think you could kind of fashion a narrative that kind of ties this mythology together in a, in a game-driven way? And yeah, I just went home and uh, you know, cooked it up for a couple of weeks and came back and did the pitch. And it's it's not a secret, basically, the idea that you know Eddie the Head, the, you know, the skeletal kind of zombie-esque character, is almost, a, I think he's a kin kind of, although they don't necessarily like to say this i think he's akin kind of to like the specter from the dc universe the spirit of of vengeance almost like one hand of the divine but he would never belong to like the organized religion aspect of it but yeah right. he's like, yeah. almost like, you know this this otherworldly divine-esque power um but he's sitting there in the void it's after all these adventures of all the albums he's sitting there in the void kind of like rest state to his called again but a darker force uh, perhaps tied to his ancient nemesis the beast um is able to like you know rip through the void and tear him apart explode into different facets of himself and they fall into different dimensions and time periods and so you're like you're broken down into the core version of eddie who must go and seek those aspects of himself out that have corrupted all these different time periods and worlds it, basically i was taking the essence of an old hindu myth and it just seemed to transplant so well into this mythology. And uh, then there you go. They got the story. That's amazing, dude. And I, I think you've just uh, underlined how uh, how much people work, especially if they're good at their game and they uh, they keep working, 
even on what we consider small little mobile games. And you know, it's clear that you put tons of effort and thought into uh, the, the presentation and the storytelling that's going into you know, everything that you're gonna be putting out there. Were you happy okay. with the way that the Iron Maiden game came together? Um, absolutely. Uh, not only did I get to work with people I wanted to work with again for a long time, I also got to work with people who uh, ended up being students that had graduated from a game design course at like the old school CIS, and then AI kind of slid in. But before then, the CIS gang yeah. uh, taught game, game design and, and storytelling and film and, and, and uh, uh, public speaking for three years there during the Broken Saints years to make the ends meet. And I was really passionate about what I was doing. And some of my best students happened to be on the Roadhouse team. And so it was just such a nice surprise. So cool. sort of and to see how much they had grown in that time frame of like, you know, 12 plus, uh, 12 plus years, see how much they had grown, to see what the design was at, to see what they were doing, and to, to see, um, I think we had this talk a long time ago, working within limitations can sometimes be the best thing. Yep. It's like when you, when you work on the old NES and you go, okay, we have this limit of visual, this limit of audio, and this limit of memory, how do we tell our story and make the game compelling? Same thing with mobile, right? Yeah. It's like with- And in indie development as well, there's been a huge move back to, uh, you know, doing more with less. Simplification, uh, I'm probably gonna go on a tangent, but we are kind of chatting. Yeah. One of my favorite games that obsessed me over like probably for about a month from end of August till about maybe a week ago, was Reigns. I'm not sure if you played it, but I, you know, it became a huge cult mobile hit, especially in Europe. Yeah. Uh, over the last month, and this was like not a free to play, but a pay up front. But the word of mouth was so cool that they were able to take this kind of Game of Thrones meets Tinder meets choose your own adventure sort of thing, and do it in this really compelling way. Uh, I talk about it on one of my blogs recently that they were able to combine all these things that can be like sticky aspects of gameplay with a compelling narrative and build it in a way that anyone could sit and one handed on a subway, but you also start to like care. Sure. It really was a game that showed what could do, and I think that that's the thing what they did with the Iron Maiden. Uh, Play RPG that was so satisfying was they work within the limits of the medium really well. Mm -hmm. uh, they're able to showcase a certain graphical style. They're able to really, really play into the strength of the music, which is why so many of the old school and like most people underestimate, especially maybe the youngins, underestimate how much pull and how much stroke, as we say, Maiden still has. Yeah, There's yeah. a reason that Austin Entry Flight 666 did so well. When you take a look at their concert in Rio from like whatever it was five years ago, like you see. 80,000 people bouncing up and down, banging their heads. That's they awesome. have a passionate, passionate following. And so there was that knowledge that no matter what we did, uh, and the team was always knowing this, no matter what they did, um, those were people who were going to gravitate towards this first. So they had to honor not just the mythology, but most importantly, the music. Yeah, and yeah. the coolest thing in my mind was having access, thanks to the band and thanks to their management, how cool the studios were, having access to like some of the original song stems to be able to mix them in and have them build with the action, have the song awesome. fill out. So, so uh, Roadhouse is done now though. Can people still get the game and play the game? Or Absolutely. A yeah. core team, I think it was announced that a core team, the Dire Maiden team from Roadhouse, uh, has been uh, pulled in, contracted. They have uh, some sort of arrangement. I'm not privy to this now yeah um but they're working this nodding frog i think that's the name of it uh, out of the uk okay uh, tied with maiden's management company so they're still developing more because it started off i think with four, four major worlds and like the first act of the story in the same way that that oz 
though though I wrote this kind of like book's worth of, of dialogue, yeah. it was always like in Baum's tale, it's meant to be this first volume of the story. Wow. So there's some closure wow. that the world also and that's those are the stories I love, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're an author, and you've written a book. And first of all, we have to let everybody know that the reason why we're getting this hitchy video and some uh, hitches in our audio is Brooke is in uh, Morocco. Uh, what part of Morocco right now are you in? Uh, right now, I am in uh, one of the infamous little surfing villages known as Tagazout. Uh, it's on the Atlantic coast, about halfway down. Um, I'd always wanted to come to North Africa. I'd heard this is a good place for, I'm not sure if your listeners or watchers know the term digital nomad, but apparently it's a thing okay. where folks like a laptop go somewhere with half decent Wi-Fi and a slightly, <laughs> you know, a more affordable standard of living. Yeah. And so hotspots are like uh, Asia, North Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, specifically Thailand, Vietnam, what have you. Um, Bulgaria, which is a new place. Bolivia is a place where, where you, you can, can live go. cheap, you can eat well, and you've got access to the internet. You can do your work and, and have some adventure. And you're not cold. And you're not cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in citizenship only, but not blood. I just, I get the wind. And especially, you know, you know Vancouver well. I was there for 20 years. You know it. Like yeah. the back of your hand. Uh, the, the six months of gray would just, yep. They're good for gaming though. For my so job. Great. Yeah. For they're my job, for it's good for just, uh, chilling in, in the, uh, in the basement and playing these games. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Well you're in Morocco and I want to go off on a little tangent here. You've done this, um, experiment. I think you did a pilot for the travel channel. Tell us a little bit about that because I think, you know, as part of your travels to write and, and to kind of uh, ensconce yourself in all kinds of crazy culture out in the world out there, you, you realize that there might be some kind of a cool program out there. And I actually watched your pilot. You clicked, uh, you tweeted a link to it, and I watched it. And I was like, yeah, this is an, a unique thing. I think you did a terrific job hosting. And, uh, and uh, you made a kind of an Anthony Bourdain kind of style travel show that I would totally watch. But tell us what the concept is. Oh, that's cool. Um, well, actually, again, another like all these things come from connected tissue of people that you know, as you know so well from uh, your yep. history of, of working with folks and relationships that you build. Um, the uh, uh, producer um, from Saints DVD days, uh, um, a fellow named Jonathan Wagner, he got in, uh, he got in touch and was like, "Hey, uh, my son is running this really successful uh, reality TV uh, company has a slate of, of programs, but we've been hearing that a couple of." The, the travel networks, uh, you know, the, 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 the usual suspects, the Nat Geos, the travel channels, whatever, are kind of hunting around for an ongoing uh, adventure show that has a bit of a spiritual angle. doesn't have to be super heavy because there are a few already, like, you know, heavier documentary styles yeah. out there. And even Bourdain himself had done a few episodes uh, of um, Parts Unknown and a few episodes of um, what was his awesome one that I love so much. It's escaping me right now. Yeah. Uh, no reservations. Right, no reservations. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he's a few that had that theme because uh, he's you know incredibly intelligent guy and a cultured guy. And he really likes to go deeper than just the hey, this tastes great, but he can play that angle too. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay, well that's that's a really intriguing thing. And uh, okay, I'm game. And here's I made my suggestions, and here's how I shape it. And I record a little, I recorded a little bit of a, uh, you know just a promo about myself and some of the things I'm passionate about and what I'd like to see in a show like this. And I forgot all about it. I was actually in town doing the Iron Maiden stuff at the time. 
uh, or at least you know working on the foundation for it. And I went back to Thailand, which was you know often my go-to place. It's a really easy place for a digital nomad to be, and you've got fiber optics, so that was cool too. I think connection. <laughs> and, all, and all of a sudden, I, I get a I get a hey, can you Skype in fifteen minutes? And it was like twelve at night, but I was up and I'm like, oh, I guess so. Sure, thinking it was just going to be a catch up chit chat how are things going and the screen comes on and, and there's uh there's the producer and his, and his son and oh, being say that again we got a good hitch right there i wish you were in thailand with the fiber oh yeah i wish you were back um so yeah i and uh, and got a call uh from a skype from the producer basically saying hey you got can you have time to talk for like you know 15 20 minutes yeah Ready? I said yes, and so the window opens up, and and there he is, and there's his son, and they're like, we're being joined by, and it was like the head of development for you know a major cable network. I yeah. can't you know too many specifics. Yeah. But they're like, Brooke, nice to meet you. We saw this demo, and we love this concept. We're looking for programming like this, and uh, we want to know a little bit more about you. And I'm like, oh crap, you know, I'm on the spot. And <laughs> okay, and just talked about the things I was passionate about and some of my travels and the projects I'd done that had kind of been infused with a bit of a spiritual message or essence in some way. And they seemed to dig it and they're like, you know, okay, we want to commission uh, the shooting of, you know, shoot a pilot, tell us like a mini pilot, like, you know, 20 minutes. Um, the normal show would be 32. And, you know, pitch us what you want to do, where you want to do it. And it just turned out with the, the budget constraints and with the time because they wanted it fast, it just made sense to look at, because the idea is the pilgrimage. That's, if you go yeah. to my site, pilgrimage.com, yeah. if you look on YouTube, you can see the featured video of the pilgrimage. And the idea is that every major spiritual tradition and some of the minor ones too, all have infused in kind of their, their you know, mystical DNA, the idea of a quest. Right, it's part of like the hero's journey. It's not just a storytelling Star Wars thing, man. Hey, Star Wars came from Taoism. Like all of these things have a sense of a quest uh, for you know conquering the dark side of the self, overcoming enlightenment. What do you want to call it? Yeah, uh, the force. For yeah, yeah, and uh, yes, <laughs> and and the 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 neat kind of the irony or less of the irony, a nice kind of synchronicity with the fact that I had gone on one in two thousand kind of a specific spiritual goal or any religious kind of allegiance whatsoever. But I had done the the uh, the fairly well-known, the famous uh, Santiago de Compostela, the, the Camino, which starts in southern France and goes across the breadth of Spain. And that's like a five-and-a-half-week walk where you're staying in people's houses where they have the symbol of the clamshell. And it's kind of like it's the old – it was the old road to the burial place of St. James. The Knights Templar set up to kind of keep the Moors at bay in wow. North Africa – into Spain and it's just like it's this walk that takes like 850 plus kilometers That's fantastic. and uh, yeah and you're, you're waking up every day and you're walking with your backpack and your stick and you're kind of carrying your burden along with you yeah. and the idea is your burden at the end and kind of like you know release your sin, less your sins but more the weight you've been carrying kind of see what life's really about and it was such a cool experience I started researching pilgrimages yeah and realized there are there are a ton and so the format of the show is that what if each week, you've got someone, you know, like myself, uh, taking somebody onto uh, a pilgrimage that maybe like lines up with their faith, or maybe something that they've been curious about or inspired by, and watching their transformation along the way, Very kind cool. of maybe nudging it along in a playful way. Uh, like, so, so the person traveling with me is the audience, right? But I get to kind of be there and have some experience, but not a 
lot. So I'm also very open to the experience as well. This is kind of like, it's a buddy road trip, but with a spiritual kind of twist to it. Right. And, and Thailand had one, uh, Theravada Buddhism, the specific form of Buddhism. Uh, it was the kind of the religion of choice in Thailand and it developed as part of their culture, their history, their alphabet. And there is this pilgrimage, essentially this 330 kilometer plus kind of pilgrimage from Bangkok or even further south if you want to go uh, up to a town called Sukhothai, which was like the heart, the seat of the old Thai kingdom and beautiful ruins, kind of like a mini Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And so, yeah, uh, there was a fellow I knew who had uh, married a Buddhist woman, married a Thai woman, and, and he's like this wonderful chef, kind of like a foul-mouthed, grumpy mini Bourdain. Yeah. And I'm like... And like he would be perfect, he would be absolutely perfect. And we put it together, and we shot it over. We you know it's I wouldn't say planes, trains, and automobiles, but you kind of get the deal. It was like you know, it was farm vehicles and trains and on foot and you know bicycles and all this stuff. Uh, and it was a crazy fun experience. How, how many uh, crew members were with you guys? Two. Two. Yeah, you guys did a good job. I I was very impressed with the uh, the storytelling and the editing and the camera work and and your hosting and. Uh, your uh, colleagues cantankerous uh, kind of tones. I thought I enjoyed all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm curious, there's there's something about all of this stuff that I think uh, a lot of the people that watch my content are, are um, people that have a deep love and a fascination for, uh, you know, the content that we talk about, the games, the movies, all of that stuff. But I think there's also a faction of that group of people that wants to do this kind of work and that's why I really wanted to talk with you because I think that you exemplify the uh, adventurous spirit of someone that wants to be creative in in uh, times that are limitless but also challenging because you kind of have to break through the noise in a myriad of different ways to get your product out there and to be seen and to be heard and to be recognized and keep getting be pay, getting paid. Um, but I think that that that, that reinvention that you're capable of is is, uh, is fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, thank you. It's a fascinating story. But do you think and would you recommend that? For, for other storytellers for out there that they explore, that they explore spiritualism and, and religion and things like that and things like that okay well first off what they have to do and i would say this to my students again another full circle back to the students that i met on the iron maiden project one of the things i preached to my game design and narrative students was that you can't like when people go oh yeah i want to make a really really cool mythology kind of like lord of the rings and i'm like you do realize that lord of the rings drew upon you know norse Christianity and drew upon older. There are older stories than the ones we're regurgitating and creating that sense of, you know, simulacrum, right? Yeah. That whole danger that we have of just pop eating itself. Um, and the best way to experience those original stories is to a travel and b look at the cultural and spiritual traditions of the place that you travel. Right. Because that's the reason those stories resonate with us in some way. There's a reason why, you know, I bring this up all the time. We've talked about Star Wars too. Like Star Wars is my bag, but I dig it. I understand why people resonate with it so much, because it's beyond just hey, lightsabers and cool and, and Millennium Falcon and Han Solo and this is cool and that and that, just the basic hero's journey. Yeah, the it, thing about it has that, but it has another layer. Yeah. Well, and the other layer, the 
thing about the force that, that really resonated with people and continues to resonate with people. It's 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 Taoist. Yeah. This is like old school Eastern. This is Lao Tzu Eastern philosophy. One foot on earth, one foot in heaven stuff. And that spiritual strain. You can't see that Yoda is essentially like you know a Taoist master. You're not paying attention. And the same thing with a huge breakout film like The Matrix in '99, the first one only, please. <laughs> that film. That film did so incredibly well worldwide, as we all know, and anyone watching knows. But it wasn't just because of bullet time and guns and cool kung fu. The Matrix was a Buddhist parable. You are sitting in illusion, and it's not real, and suddenly you get a glimpse of what the real world is, and you feel compelled to wake others up to the truth of it. That's what the Matrix was. That's a Buddhist parable. And if people uh, uh, suddenly felt moved by it and they weren't sure why, that's because it spoke to something deeper in them. I honestly believe that. Same with the series that I made, like Broken Saints. That was the whole point of it, right? I think that there's, when we look at the anime that we love, when you look at the Akiras and the Ghosts in the Shells, they ask questions about consciousness and identity and you know, connection to something larger than ourselves in some way, whether it's good or bad. Uh, that plays into the stuff that, that you know your fans watch. Same with sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. Um, and the really, really cool games that resonate, it's not just from an emotional space. A lot of times that emotion hits hits us more deeply because there is this undercurrent. This doesn't have to be hitting you over the head with a hammer, no. but this undercurrent of something more. Absolutely. And, and power and shapes people, right? And that's, that's just something that always spoke to me. And I realized that I might not end up making, you know, the, the biggest, most populist, most, uh, you know, uh, top of the church stuff uh, often in my life. Um, but what I can do, you know, before I end up in the ground or wherever, what I can do is kind of make stuff that has some sense of purpose. And if it inspires people along the way to kind of open their eyes a bit, their hearts a bit, and, and maybe make their lives a, a little more rich, uh, it, as a consequence, then, then maybe I did my job. And so much of that, I think you are indebted to the travels that you are always doing, right? This, this, uh, this digital nomad existence isn't just a tagline. It isn't just a promotional vehicle for you. You you literally live in your suitcase, and you just every time I see you, uh, it's like you're racing through the city. And and the next time I see you, you're on a beach somewhere, and uh, you're posting a, about some crazy adventure that you've had, some moped that's broken down, or something, or some some awesome meal that you had, or some some bug you have or, picked or up. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're getting like giardia parasites in Laos in the fall. We're like something that almost cured. Uh, well, and this is the thing I, I have to, I'm not saying that's for, you, you would ask the question, I probably ran a little bit, but you would ask the question um, for the readers, or not for the readers, for the listeners and the watchers out there mm -hmm. who are considering storytelling or already are storytellers and are moving towards like an interactive path. Um, is there something about uh, my journey that, I, that, that could work for them or that I recommend? And Travel, I can honestly say, uh, kind of surrendering the old way of being, which is like really structured. Okay, here's yeah. the bank machine, and here's here's rent, let pay, and here's this. You can't That's Google all... experience, right? No, you can, you can research no, the I'm hell not. out of stuff, but you can't Google experience. Yeah. No, and I have to honestly say that though I was always passionate for narratives, I loved good storytelling. You know, yeah, I liked being an actor when I was young. I liked giving speeches. Is and I like you know writing little short stories and being silly and doing comedy skits and all this stuff when I was younger, but 
I think my storytelling ability, and it's still so much to grow, uh, like such a space to grow into, but my storytelling ability didn't kind of take that, that leap forward, make that little quantum jump forward until travel. It was the backpack experience of the South Pacific that inspired Broken Saints. Right. Um, it was a lot of time in, in uh, Southeast Asia, but also travels through like Central America and a few other places that had an impact on, and also the walk across Spain that inspired some of the screenplays I wrote um, that also helped me to kind of push dominoes backwards and realize, oh, wow, this is whole kind of that feline mystical presence in my life from childhood forward. And that came from travels through Asia. And, you know, Buddha's talking about cats being enlightened masters. And I'm like, hey, there's a, there's a story there that's yeah. tied to my own personal experience. But I wouldn't have had that just by researching it on Google. Well, let's I had to like really. Let's talk about Cat's Maw, because I think this is a very personal current project for you. Uh, you've written the first book, and it's a series of books that you're planning, right? Uh, encapsulate what your uh, concept is for uh, Cat's Maw. Okay, well, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, I really do like what some of the reviewers have said. One specifically uh, for a really cool um, teen library magazine basically said that uh, it's uh, Imagine a Modern Day Narnia as written by Stephen King. Cool. And I went, okay, wow, you got that's, it. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. this, this is the whole thing, right? I, I think that for me, and I don't want to say, again, I don't want to seem like the spiritual aspect is clubbing anyone over the heads. It's not like Broken Saints. It really was in your face with the spirituality. Yeah. This is more subtle. But at the same time, like you, you read Narnia when you're a kid or even as an adult, you read again or watch the films, and it's not a huge leap done and it's a little bit of a you know there's a there's some uh christian allegory yeah, the christian in the yeah. story right? yeah that is you know, hey hey for jesus and that's cool um and that idea and we talked about this at comic-con a couple of years ago it really stuck with me because i couldn't wait to have an opportunity to kind of explain more what i was doing right uh what i had but and you you were passionate about this so many of the stories are just about the one the one hero, right the classic kind of breaks through he's filled with goodness and they're the chosen one which yeah. is okay and it worked in harry potter and it worked in you know the christ smith and it worked in you know this and that and this and the other thing neo the one the one the one but it's kind of like i don't know is that a symptom of our time is kind of like the narcissism of only one can save us and we put our faith into that one that's outside of us and that could be kind of dangerous right it's like yeah. you look at 40 percent us going trump's the one like that's frightening right yep. <laughs> that's yes it is terrifying. yeah um but for me what's really really interesting about eastern philosophy and again i'm not saying i adhere to any one kind of it or that any of it's right but what's interesting about that from the hindu buddhist kind of roots of it, is this idea that there isn't a one that it's kind of an illusion that everyone together is kind of like the mind of it of mm. capital you know what I mean? It's it's like there's this the universe itself is this great kind of being slowly waking up, waking up, and and the one is just maybe the first person to wake up, and then it ripples out as they interact with others, and then everyone starts to wake up and realize everyone's it. And I loved that concept. I thought I think I think it's really beautiful, but it hasn't other than maybe it hinted at in like Avatar, Last Airbender, and a few other kind of Eastern screen properties yeah. and anime as well. It hasn't really been covered in like a modern kind of Western fable children's story. And for some reason, this really struck me. And also it made me realize with my travels and with a few kind of semi-mystical things that happened to me, that there was a, a hook that meant a lot to me. And that hook was 
the world of felines. Um, I'd had some really interesting experiences when I was young. I was hit by a car when I was seven, uh, almost died. It was like a month after I'd received a, a kitten for my birthday. And it was my best friend in this tiny town in the middle of nowhere in Nova Scotia. And I was at the kid's hospital for three weeks getting patched up. And, and when I was brought home and stuck in a little cot in the main room and put on morphine, and, oh, I'm delirious, where's my cat? My mom's like, oh, it's okay, you know, cats grow up in the, in the wild and he's running around the farmland and it's fine, it's fine. And I kept having these dreams that, you know, I'm a seven-year-old kid, it's crazy, but I'm having these dreams that my cat's kind of talking to me and not moving its mouth in a certain yeah. way, not jungle. Well, you were on morphine. Just projecting it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But my mom finally admitted when I begged, where, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go outside or do anything until you tell me where my kid is. And she's like, well, on our, your third day at the hospital, we drove into Halifax to see you. We came home, and sadly, he was lying dead in the same spot where you were struck by the car, the exact same spot. Wow. And I had had a dream that night that I couldn't explain as a kid, but I look back now and I understand what it was. I had a dream that night that basically was saying that it was an exchange. It was like a life for a life sort of deal holy crap what i did not what i did not know that i know it's kind of weird folks I'm sorry, yeah but what i did time was that i was supposed to lose my leg right i was supposed to lose my that when i said to my mom i'm not going to go back and see his his grave back on the back of the property and at the old colonial graveyard where we hung out because i was a creepy little kid uh i'm not going to go back there and so i can walk there under my own power my mom started crying i'm like I should cry but little did i know that they're like oh actually like in six weeks when i go to get checked chances are i'm gonna lose my leg at least at the knee down but every night i was having dreams and my cat would come to me and brush along my leg kind of like we just had these little adventures floating through whatever and then i went to get the x-rays six weeks later and the doctor comes out with the scans and kind of is like wow you're just you're, aren't you a little miracle my parents are like what and yeah, you've healed a little bit of muscle atrophy, but otherwise you're you're fine. You won't be able to run anytime soon, but you're okay. Wow. And my parents didn't speak on the way home. And I walked out to the back of the property and I saw a little like little mound of the grave with little hollyhocks and stuff. And I, I cried as a little boy does when his first pet dies. Yeah. But that really stuck with me and the dreams kept coming. And then I, I had cats later in life and forgotten all about that. And they were like, there were mystical experiences where they were hopping into my dreams and I'm like, okay, I'm imagining this and having childhood flashbacks. I'd go away, have a friend look after my cat. I'd come home and I'd be like, Brooke, um, does your cat hop into dreams? Like, this is really weird. <laughs> I didn't understand like, what's happening, but I kind of knew there was this like little click that there was a story there somewhere. And then I went to Asia. And when I went to Asia, when I went to Thailand to kind of like learn Muay Thai and go to meditation and kind of just have this cultural experience and change my lifestyle, I was being exposed a lot to, to uh, the regional, regional Buddhism. And they honestly believe in that part of the world that cats are enlightened masters who have earned this feline life. They are teaching us by coming back after being humans and getting off the wheel of rebirth. They choose to come back as cats to show us how to be perfectly calm and then perfectly focused because cats don't waste energy. Right. They're either sleeping or they're focused on cleaning and eating, or they're hunting, but they don't just like, yeah. like a, they're not a dog, yeah. they're a cat. Right. And, and so you see all of these Buddhist statues covered in cats, you see all the Buddhist monks walking around cats around their necks, wow. or sitting there watching a cat. Wow. And, I think, and it's, it's really, really cool. 
And then I started researching a lot of spiritual traditions around the world. It turns out that the cats played a role, a lot of them, more than just Egypt where they were worshipped, but they had this kind of mystical quality. And then at the end, to wrap this all up, because I didn't really want to give away plot points too much, but to wrap this all up is a bit of science. And here's something I found incredibly interesting. We are awake approximately 16 hours a day and sleep approximately eight, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're lucky, you get your eight, maybe seven. Yeah. Um, cats are the exact opposite. And not only are they the exact opposite, when they dream, and it's been proven by brain analysis, they actually dream. Uh, they're actually having, you know, uh, subconscious movements in their mind. Um, they dream in the same frequency with the brain waves that we do. Wow. So my thing, the kind of Narnia experience, the loving of stuff like time bandits and anime and alternate world stuff and quantum theory and what have you, with all this mythology around feelings, I'm like, what if what we're seeing as a cat awake in our world only eight hours is actually, you know, a greater creature, this divine kind of spiritual protector that's dreaming itself into our world for eight hours a day. And this boy is this horrible accident that starts to dream into their world and the world starts to come together. It's this kind of big Buddhist parable about, you know, how to face life, how to face death, what it means to make choices, how you can forgive others when you might think they're evil or bad, but really they're there to teach you something about yourself. That kind of thing. That's incredible, dude. Now, I, I haven't read your book, and I keep having to apologize to you over a direct message on Twitter. <laughs> I Well, it's just many, many things that keep coming in that I have to review and go and see. And, uh, you know, I'm, I try to be a father as much as I can, too. So it's it is. And Ruby, my daughter, is not of the age to read this book yet. But I have it. I no, bought it. Sure. I bought one of your signed copies sure. from the... Uh, the uh, the comic store Golden Age Collectibles on Vancouver in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, anyways, yeah. I, I will read that. But one of the cool things that you have done, and I know that this is going to be really cool for uh, Ratchet and Clank fans out there, is David Kay, the voice of Ra of Clank, is uh, your narrator for the audiobook because you have a very long relationship with David, don't you? Man, oh man, my relationship with Dave is one of the few that's longer than my relationship with with you professionally. Well, interesting is both of you guys auditioned for Electric Playground back in 1995. And it's just a surreal thing to have watched you guys just flourish and do all kinds of really interesting work along the way. And yeah, it's really cool. The world is small and uh, be good to people, right? But anyways. Absolutely. And, and Dave, Dave inspired, there was a kinship right from the beginning. Um, I really respected his skill set when he was just working in radio at Fox and, and doing uh, anime voiceover dubs. Uh, for Ocean Group way back when, and we met each other. Um, this is when I just owned the video game store with, with Sean Millington of the BC Lions. This is before right. I was even at um, We Dave and I got to know each other through theater at Deep Cove in North Vancouver, and we were in a couple of shows together, and we kind of had this friendship and this shared love of uh, kind of creating stuff and, and characters, but also his type of voice intrigued me, and he liked that I was writing plays and doing some other things. And then I went to EA, and... Uh, I think one of the first things other than my writing ability to write like cop dialogue and descriptions and text blocks and stuff for the Need for Speed team and some design for Scott's really cool title, Beetle Adventure Racing, one of the unsung greats on N64. Oh, that was an awesome um, game. Wasn't it though? Like, yeah. And this is another reason why I, want to, I know we're totally doing the tangents here. Yeah. And I'm probably high on rock and coffee. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, that was another reason why I wanted to work with Scott again. Because uh, at first it was kind of like, okay, my game days are done. But at the same time, not only was he kind of uh, innovative enough and, and, and 
cocky enough and brave enough and, and had the foresight to go, okay, San Francisco Rush means kind of like Super Mario with these massive adventure worlds on the N64. Oh, yeah, it was so the, cool. With the licensed Beetle. It was super cool. There was real innovation there, and I was impressed, and he kind of like said, okay, take the audio and some other stuff and just run with it. It's yours. So I brought Dave in his voice for that. I brought Dave in for voice for I mean for Speed Hot Pursuit. Uh, I brought Dave in for when we were we were good trying. We were here's a little secret. Nobody knows. We were trying to get Patrick Stewart for the narrator's voice for Kessie. And if we couldn't get him, we were trying to get Avery Brooks. So that was Deep Space Nine and Next Generation. Yeah. We couldn't afford either. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and Tarny, Tarny was freaking out, and I'm like what's your budget? I know somebody and brought Dave in. And the thing is we had to get these narrator chunks down to like tenths of a second. It was like, okay, for 19.2 seconds, you're saying this from the Tokugawa period. And after a couple of warm ups, Dave was nailing everything to the 10th of a second. That's and awesome. I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to work with you again. Uh, I love this guy. And yeah, he moved down to Hollywood. Uh, actually before he moved down to LA, the big miracle came again with Broken Saints because we had this massive project. We can talk more about that later. It's the 10th anniversary, but we had this massive project with a cast of like 40 or 50. Um, and I knew who the best voiceover people in town were, but there's no way I could afford them all. There was no way. Yeah. We couldn't pay union and most of them wouldn't work non-union at the time. Except someone of Dave's caliber says, I'm working on this thing non-union for this month it kind of has a ripple effect. And everyone That's else awesome. is like, oh, he's vouching for this guy in this project. Maybe we should take a look at it. And that was how we landed such an incredible cast for that. So coming to this point in Cat's Maw, Dave has been down in Hollywood now for, what, a decade plus? Um, yep. doing, doing amazing work, everything from like, you know, Fox, the voices Fox Sports to right now he's like last tonight with John Oliver doing, and how is this still a thing? And all That's the cool incredible. Stuff. That's amazing. Um, uh, Beast Wars, Transformers, Megatron. Oh, yes, that's yeah. Dave. Dave. Dave is like, he's everywhere, right? He's ubiquitous. And, uh, but so incredibly talented and so giving of his time. And it was interesting because uh, Catchmog come out, I always wanted to do uh, an audio book that was something special, not just so-and-so narrates, which is most audio books, yeah. maybe a little hint of fear and uh, the occasional boing sound effect there. I love audio, as you know, and I wanted to do something that was rich and hypnotic and dreamy. I wanted to use my cousin's incredible soundscapes and original orchestrations, and I wanted to bring in effects, and I wanted to really create this haunted, haunting, chilling dream space. But you have to have the voice, and not only do you have to have the narrator voice, but you have to have the rare skill, if you don't have a full cast like the BBC can afford, you have to have the rare skill of a narrator who can instantly go and so-and-so said and then drop into a character voice and then come back to narrator voice and not do it in broken cuts yeah. to have it be fluid. That, that takes a level of virtuosity and, and a singular talent that is rare. And I didn't even think I could approach Dave because there's no way I could afford him for like six weeks to two months of recording time that we did over Skype. Yeah. Dave got in touch when he saw the trailer for the book, the book trailer for Cat's Maw that I put up. Um, and another great talent in town, Michael Dobson, who played Oran and Broken Saints, has been some of the Batman Black and Whites and some other really great stuff. Uh, he had done uh, the trailer poem for that, this kind of the mythology poem book. And um, But then he got really, really busy. I'm like, oh, crap, I don't know who, who could possibly do this story justice. And Dave got in touch and said, uh, I'm curious, I'd like to read the book. I'm like, 
really? He's like, yeah, just send it to me. I'm just, you know, I, I think that maybe I could bring something to it, but I want to see if I resonate with the material. And I wasn't sure that it would come out of it. I was like, wow, it was really nice. He got in touch. And uh, sent him the book, and less than a week later, he's like, okay, how do we do this? That's awesome. I'm like, I, 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 I can only afford to pay you peanuts if that. You can get a cut in the back end, and I'll take, I'll take nothing. Like, I'm actually giving all proceeds of the book to my cousin, the composer and, and editor and mixer, who I work with in Berlin uh, for months on end to make this something magic. And the other half goes to Dave. I'm just, I'm wandered out there because it's really good. Yeah. And Dave and I record. Skype, half of them in Thailand and half of them in Vancouver and him down in Hollywood in his home studio. We recorded them for almost two months and he made, you might be out there and you started listening to this segment and you went, oh, books, yeah, whatever, I don't have time to read uh, books, whatever, it's not my thing at all. <laughs> Who has okay. time for books? Where are books the buttons? <laughs> don't need no book, pardon? Okay. I hear you. Slide that away. Slide that away. Go listen to the sample. If you go to if you go to my site or if you hunt for like Cat's Maw audiobook sizzle or anything, go listen. Well, just to the free. We that Dave does. We we do have to to wrap this up, and we can certainly talk for a long time and about many many more things. Uh, and we'll definitely do this again when you have fiber next time. By the way, but uh, um, I I do want people to get to know more about you and the work that you're doing and you just created a new website right so what is it hey yes please come and visit uh i hate when people are hucksters like this but this is more a case of nothing for sale just come and see what i've been working on yep. learn a little bit more about my interface talk exchange uh brookburgess.com b-r-o-o-k-e the girl's name version brookburgess.com <laughs> and you'll get, to see about, <laughs> you'll get to see stuff about oz broken kingdom and about iron maiden uh, weekly blog post talks about rings, mystical yep. bots, stuff like that, um, and uh, and also cat's Moss stuff in the upcoming books and a few other cool surprises and videos. And Dude, you're a fascinating stuff. human being, and I I yeah. love that we took the time to get together to do this. I don't think this will be the last time. I think I'm going to have uh, a lot of questions from people that watch this video, and I'm, I'm, I, I would expect that you're going to hear from some of them. But uh, uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate all of the uh, the adventuring that you're doing. I think it's really um, inspiring and it's fun and it may not be, you know, profitable all the time. I, I feel like you, you have to keep sort of jumping from project to project to keep rocking. But I don't think you're bored that often. That's the sense that I get from you. And I, th I get the sense that creatively you have a pretty wonderful dream. Yeah, I think I think I am lucky, um, but at the same time, uh, and this is this is not blowing smoke back. We've had these talks before, and I'm happy to make it public. It's guys like you with the level of commitment and generosity, uh, and really the foresight for knowing that this this platform and this medium was going to like blossom and burgeon and grow to what it was. And you were there in the center of it, so passionate about it, and that passion shows through in everything you do. And, every accolade every award all the success to you uh continued for years to come brother it was really nice to connect on, on this forum hopefully we can do it again soon. absolutely buddy and uh have fun in morocco how long are you going to be out there for i'll be in morocco for the uh six weeks or so um plus and then i think to asia except there are a few there are a few interesting offers on the table so maybe there might be a bit of a sidetrack before then um we'll see Awesome. And I'll let you know. Awesome. Well, keep track with uh, with Brick Burgess and uh, 
And thanks to him so much for being on the show. He's an incredible guy, and he always has a fascinating tale. So if you're in Morocco in the next six weeks, look him up. I'm sure everybody's going to know where he is. Thanks, brother. We'll see you soon, okay? Be safe, have fun. And uh, Stitcher, we'll see you guys next time in the basement.